From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that goes deep into the stories behind some of our biggest thinkers. I'm Edwina Throsby. Not a lot of women get to practice law in Afghanistan, but attorney Kimberly Motley is one of the very few. Raised in a poor, majority black neighbourhood in Milwaukee in America's Midwest, Kimberly has made a career defending particularly difficult cases. And in learning how to navigate the Afghani legal system, she has also developed a unique understanding of intercultural approaches to justice. She's talking to Benjamin Law at Antidote Festival in 2019. Kimberly Motley, welcome to It's a Long Story. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, you're an American lawyer. You're a former beauty queen of African-American and Korean heritage known for groundbreaking legal work in Afghanistan and beyond. Now, that is one hell of a life story (laughs) condensed into a single sentence. I'd love to hear more about each of those aspects. So maybe we can start with, with your heritage and growing up. How did your parents meet? Well, my father was an Air Force man, and so he met my mother when he was stationed in Korea, um, and he you know, fell in love, and they uh, married on a military base in Korea, and then he brought her to America. So I grew up in the projects of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a very... Um, I like my neighborhood, to be honest. Um, I have two brothers and one sister. Uh, so we grew up in sort of a very strict household uh, with, you know, with an Asian mother and a a military father. That's what you're going to (laughs) get. And so, uh, yeah. Did that mean that you stood out from the rest of the families or was it a pretty kind of multicultural neighborhood already? Well, no, I mean, it was a very black neighborhood, to Mm -hmm. be honest. And so it was a very black neighborhood and actually... My father is the only father that I remember from the neighborhood. So it was a lot of single parent households. Mm. We always went to uh, white schools. Uh, So I I grew up in a very different socioeconomic, ethnically um, different Mm. environment, meaning my neighborhood was very uh, poor. Mm -hmm. But the schools that they sent sent us to, because they always sent us to private uh, Catholic schools, was sort of middle class. to wealthy individuals. So we went there and, you know, so I was always moving between mm. different groups, if that makes sense. Milwaukee's got a bit of a reputation. I read that in 2018, it was deemed the worst place in America to raise a child. I don't know where that stat or figure comes from or what metrics they're even using, but is that a fair assessment? I mean, I think it, it was deemed the worst place in America to raise a black child. A black child, that's right. Yes. And so I do think Frankly, there's that Milwaukee, unfortunately, has earned that reputation, rightfully so. Milwaukee is consistently one of the top, if not the top, most segregated city in America. It's the city that incarcerates more Black men than any other city in the U.S. At least um, in one zip code, there's at least 60% of the Black men in that zip code is incarcerated, which is insane. We're also uh, a city where 50% of the black men um, are incarcerated in one shape or form. Mm. So it has a lot of issues in Milwaukee. There's definitely a lot of issues. It's a very blue collar um, town, but you know, it's, it's home. Mm. It sounded like there were instances growing up that exposed you to how unfair 
the world could be. Is that safe to say? I think so. I mean, I think that there are definitely issues in our neighborhood and definitely issues in our in our household. You know, when my father was actually working for General Electric and he got in a really bad car accident where he was almost killed when I was very young. And as a result of his disability, he's actually fired from GE. You know, I just grew up sort of seeing him fighting this court case against his former employer for them, frankly, discriminated against him, firing him because he was now um, under disability. Um, he ultimately lost that case, unfortunately. But it was just something that I, I would always see growing up is sort of the injustices, not just within my household, but also within my surrounding community. So seeing something like that, your dad having to fight so hard to get some semblance of justice and not getting what he sought, how did that inform your view of the world growing up? Well, I mean, it definitely uh, made me realize at a very young age how hard the world is. I also, with my mother, who was actually born in North Korea, and she was a baby when she was um, sort of carried to South Korea, she also had a lot of issues. Um, when she met and married my father, she pretty much went against her Korean family, and they pretty much disowned her. So she had issues where she didn't really have a relationship with her family anymore when she came to the U.S. And also she was a new immigrant, you know, mm. trying to learn a language, trying to understand the culture while trying to raise kids. So, you know, both situations, they had a lot to deal with. And she was sort of placed into this um, Black American community, which was really unfamiliar to her. So it was, it was really interesting. Sounded like your parents were outsiders before you even came onto the scene. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They definitely were. Now, why law school? Why did you want to pursue law? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I don't know. There wasn't like a specific thing that happened. To be honest, when I went to college, I wanted to be a DJ. That was sort of my, <laughs> that's sort of what I wanted to do. I didn't want to. You did go on to DJ, didn't you? I did a little bit, like just, you know, informally. I'm not a professional DJ by any stretch of the imagination, but I do do some DJing. Um, but I, I just was always sort of drawn to law um, in bits and pieces here and there. It was something that was always very interesting to me. Um, but to be honest, I think for a long time, I was sort of fighting against it because I had seen so many injustices in my neighborhood and, and with the police and lawyers and whatnot that I really did not want to go in that field. And in that you were worried that you were going to become a part of a machine that you disagreed with? Pretty much. I mean, I thought it was going to be part of, part of this machine and I never saw it turn out good for people. You know what I mean? And so you just felt like, well, there's no justice, if that makes sense. So with, all, with those reservations in mind, what changed your mind? You know, it was just, it just felt right, you know, at some point. At some point, I just um, had to realize who I am and that, you know, going to law school at that point in my life sort of made sense for me. Um, it was interesting because when I applied to law school, it was kind of, you know, I took the the LSAT test, but I applied really on the last day that you could apply for law school. And I only applied to one law school and I just really wasn't even trying. And, and I happened to get in that law school, the, the one law school that I applied to. And I was the last person that they admitted that year, which was interesting. So I guess it was meant to be. Wow. And then after you graduated from law school with a master's in criminal justice, you became a public prosecutor and a criminal defense lawyer. What were those first kind of cases that you worked on? Was a, I, was, I was a public defender. And so what I was working on is representing people that were poor for a wide variety of criminal offenses, such as, you know, battery, 
uh, drug offenses, murder, weapons violations. So it was a whole hodgepodge of, of different cases and clientele that I had, in addition to representing not just adults, but also a lot of juvenile clients. Mm. These are tough, complicated cases. I mean, they definitely are. And I think the way that our public um, defender system is set up is that each attorney is supposed to get so many points a year. So you're supposed to get, I believe it is at that point in time anyway, 200 points a year. So a misdemeanor case may be half a point, um, a, a felony may be one point. So essentially what you're doing as an individual attorney is you're representing anywhere from 200 to 300 clients each year. Wow. So you are in court all day, every day, just pounding out cases, litigating, litigating, pounding out cases. So it's a lot. As you're doing this work, and that kind of volume of work, you also win a major beauty pageant title. Is this around the same period? Yes. How does this fit in with the work that you're doing? How does this even come up in the first place? Well, I mean, this is completely separate from that work. Um, basically, I won, I believe, 2004, uh, Mrs. Wisconsin America. Mm -hmm. So I competed, competed in the Mrs. America for the state of Wisconsin. And so basically, I had a best friend that dared me to compete in the pageant. Oh, it really you did it as a dare? I did it as a dare um, because it basically all you need is a swimsuit. There's a swimsuit portion. There's an interview portion and an evening gown. So there's no talent portion. If mm. there was a talent, I wouldn't have joined it. But it was a like a two-page application and you just have to go and spend a day doing this thing. And, you know, I won, which was not expected at all. Um, but it was a good experience. Was it one of those beauty pageants where you also have to talk about your values, your passions, your beliefs? Yes, a little bit. You have to, and you know, I, you have to talk about exactly what you believe in, but also there's sort of a one-on-one -on -one interview that they have you to do with each of the judges and that's 50% of what you get graded on. So I was used to talking to people and I I think that's what really put me over the top. I've read that you used beauty pageants partly as a platform to campaign on legal issues. Is mm -hmm. that right? That's correct. I mean, because once you compete in it and you win, then you really need to create a platform. And so what my platform was, is I was fighting for truancy abatement. Basically what was happening in, in Wisconsin, which was ridiculous, is that kids would skip school, high school students would skip school, and then they would be arrested for skipping school and then have a juvenile record for being truant. And so what was happening is, is that once you have seven truancies, then you can be charged with a misdemeanor. So in Racine, where I was practicing in, in Wisconsin, they were charging, they were counting the truancies per class. Mm. So each kid, you have seven classes in one day and you can get charged with a misdemeanor. Usually for a lot of kids that were skipping schools because they were taking care of younger siblings or they were the you know, parents in the situation. So they didn't, every, most kids didn't want to skip school, but based on their circumstances, they had no choice, but you're compounding the problem by criminally charging the kids. And so that just didn't make any sense to me. And so that was sort of my platform was creating programming to allow the society to help these kids to maybe like create daycare centers or, or what have you to try to help these kids and these families so that they wouldn't have these criminal charges on their record. So even though these two streams of your life, beauty pageants and your legal advocacy work started out separately, in the end, they kind of married in a way that worked. Yeah, that's true. Now, in 2008, so four years after you won that title, you received an interesting job offer that involved going to Afghanistan. What was that job offer? Well, basically, I was um, I was 
sort of pick to go to Afghanistan to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys as part of a justice sector support program that was funded by the U.S. Department of State. Mm -hmm. So I essentially was sent there to train Afghan defense attorneys, but also to help build their legal aid system within the country, which was at its beginning stages. You hadn't been out of the country prior to this work? No, it was my first time. And why (laughs) did you say yes? Well, because I thought it was, A, it was very intriguing. B, I went for financial reasons. Um, me going to Afghanistan with this job opportunity was would be making almost over triple my current salary. And with three kids, student loans, you know, it just seemed like a smart choice to do just for one year. At the same time, it's Afghanistan. So did yeah. you have any reservations? I definitely did. I mean, I just didn't know. You know, I, I've never been to Afghanistan. I I only knew about Afghanistan, as most people who don't live in Afghanistan knows by watching the news and whatnot. And most of that is not very positive. So what were you expecting to find when you landed there? And what was the reality? Well, I mean, the way that they train you at through this uh, program is when you get off the plane, you sort of feel like a suicide bomber is going to come running up to you and give you a hug. You know, they terrify you. Um, they say you're going to be on a curfew, you're going to be on a compound, and they really scare you and, and make it seem as though you're going to like a battlefield. And so although Afghanistan is not a super secure place to be, it certainly wasn't as dangerous as what we were led to believe in the training. A lot of chaos, um, but ultimately a lot of good Afghan people that are just trying to live their lives in peace. And were there extra considerations that you had to take as not just a foreigner, but a foreign woman in Afghanistan? Well, in the training sessions, they sort of encourage the foreign women to wear headscarves and to make sure that, you know, you don't show any skin. Um, In my opinion, I don't agree with that, the way that we were trained in that way. Um, I think it was very misguided. All the trainers were all American. There wasn't one Afghan that trained us in those trainers about how to culturally be. Um, But they really did focus on sort of the three women that were going to Afghanistan trying to tell us how we should dress and how we should behave and how we shouldn't catch eye contact. We shouldn't shake hands. It was just, you can't, but it was just a bunch of crap. It seemed as though when we were sent there to Afghanistan, they knew that we're Americans. They know that we're from a different culture. And so they knew that we were there to help train lawyers there. So they didn't expect us to come there to sort of behave as other people within their culture do. So I saw ultimately that the training was more from the perspective of what Americans thought how Americans should behave in Afghanistan as opposed to how Afghans Mm. thought Americans should behave in Afghanistan. So when you started not wearing a headscarf, when I assumed that you started making eye contact and shaking hands, how did locals take you? They were fine. I mean, to be honest, I never have worn a headscarf since I've been in Afghanistan. It just was nothing, something that I wasn't comfortable with. Um, Not to be disrespectful, it's not legally obligatory for me to wear a headscarf. So I didn't see the point, frankly. Um, of doing that um, just in the office, for instance. And so when I wouldn't wear a headscarf and when I would shake hands, it was received just fine. The Mm. Afghans weren't, you know, I wasn't lectured by anybody within Afghanistan about this is how you should be. Um, It was completely received fine. There is that perception from people outside of Afghanistan of a deeply oppressive patriarchal society. I was interested to see you say, uh, to tell the truth, I got more sexist crap from foreign men than I do from Afghans. Can you expand on that? I mean, definitely. There's been a lot of foreigners that have come to Afghanistan. And so as a result, 
in my opinion, to be honest, a lot of some of the foreign men, they enjoy the misogyny that Afghanistan has. For instance, in the program that I was in, they refused to promote women. And, the, and this is a U.S. Department of State justice funded program. They refused to promote women because their reasoning was that they couldn't put women in sort of managerial positions because the Afghan men would have an issue with it which was ridiculous. And so I saw, you know, a lot of sort of, sort of misogyny within the programming that we were even in as foreign women that wasn't necessarily coming from the Afghans, but it was coming from the American. You found a system where American employees lived entirely separately to mm-hmm. Afghan society. Lawyers who ticked the boxes waited to come home essentially, but you wanted to learn about the local legal system. And you began visiting prisons, meeting judges against the advice of your company. Why did you do that? And what did you find? Well, I mean, the reason why I wanted to go visit prisons and whatnot is because the fact that I was went, I was sent to Afghanistan to train and mentor Afghan defense attorneys as sort of this expert that I was, this title I was given was kind of ridiculous. I knew nothing about Afghanistan. I knew nothing about the legal system there. And so I felt a responsibility for me to learn about the legal system in Afghanistan. And so I thought the best way for me to educate myself would be if I went to the various prisons in Afghanistan and sort of really just listened to the experiences that the prisoners had within the court systems. I thought it'd be smart to go to trials and just observe what was happening within the Afghan court procedures. You know, so I really went to these different places to educate myself better on the legal system so that I could ultimately become a better trainer to the Afghan lawyers that we were training. And what were the biggest interesting kind of differences that you found between, say, the American legal system and the Afghan system. What were the things about the local legal system that you wish you knew before you'd arrived in the country? Well, I mean, I definitely did not understand when I first went to Afghanistan, the intersection between the formal law and Islamic law Mm -hmm. and how that plays out within the legal system, how Islamic law is really the primary legal jurisprudence in Afghanistan was something that we weren't even allowed to train on in our training sessions, which ultimately to me didn't make any sense. Seems like a huge blind spot. Exactly, because we're going to the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. So Islamic law is law. And so the church is the state, you know? And so I think that was something that I was completely ignorant to before I went to Afghanistan. Also the fact that, you know, in the Afghan legal system, there's no jury trials. Everything is a judge trial. So it's a, usually where they can, three judges will preside over a case. And so that was something that was very, very different for me. Um, Another thing that was very different is how so many people were being tried in absentia, meaning so many people, I would sit in court and I saw these judges finding people guilty of what they're being charged with by prosecutors. And none of these people were physically present to argue their own case. And so that was something that was really, really different than what I was used to in the U.S. Now, we, you mentioned before that you had ambitions to be a DJ mm-hmm. and that you have DJed since. You DJed at infamous expat mansions there, so-called poppy palaces right. that were built on opium money. And at one of these parties, you invited to a prison 
a notorious prison in Afghanistan. What is that prison called and what did you find there? Mm -hmm. um, I was invited to go to Polacharki Prison. And basically Polacharki Prison is Afghanistan's largest prison. It was built in the 1970s by the Russian and it was sort of nicknamed the prison of death. And it's based in on the outskirts of Kabul. You know, again, this was part of me trying to understand what the legal system in Afghanistan was like. I was surprised to actually meet a lot of foreign men that were locked up, men from the UK, Australia, South Africa, that most of them had worked for private security companies and the embassies that to which they were affiliated with seemed sort of confused as to how to help them. And, you know, I was surprised to meet foreign men that were locked up and, and I met foreign women locked up as well. And so two of the first foreigners I met were Bevan Campbell and Anthony Malone. And their experiences were very similar to what the experiences of the other Afghans also within the court system. They talked about how they were tortured. They talked about the physical abuse that they endured. They talked about, at least for the two English speakers, they talked about how they weren't given a translator. So they had no idea what was said in court. They had lawyers, but the lawyers really didn't do anything and didn't really understand how to practice law. So essentially they didn't have lawyers that represented them. And by the time that I met them, they had both together had been in Polacharki for over three years. Wow. And was it from that encounter, that visit, those conversations that propelled you to become a foreign litigator in Afghanistan? Definitely. I mean, you know, when I left Milwaukee, I was on um, a sabbatical. And so I love court. I love litigating. So me meeting this man um, and sort of thinking to start representing them was a result of, number one, me missing the courtroom to a lot of curiosity to see, you know, if it'd be possible for me to represent sort of these men within the Afghan court courtroom. And three, because I was tired of the program to which I was a part of this justice funded program that really didn't do anything and wasn't sort of propelling rule of law in Afghanistan, in my opinion. And so based on all these factors, I decided to quit my job. And then I started representing um, foreigners locked up in Afghanistan. Kimberly, some of your other more significant cases involve women in Afghanistan. Um, there was a case where you were the first independent lawyer to represent a victim of domestic violence in an Afghan court, a woman who'd been forced into marriage by her family at the age of 12 at the time and then tortured by her husband. There was another case where you represented the family of a 27-year-old woman murdered in 2015 after being falsely accused of having burned the Quran. Tell me about cases like that and do they take a toll on you? Well, definitely both those cases are very hot button cases in Afghanistan because they really go to the heart of the culture. So they definitely take a toll. And with those types of cases, I have to be a little bit more careful from a security standpoint um, in how I move in the country when I'm representing, you know, certain women for certain cases or like like you said, for Kanda's family. Um, when Farkanda was accused of falsely accused of burning the Holy Quran because it's so sensitive to deal with such cases. But the problem is, is that there wasn't any other lawyers that were willing to really step up to the plate and represent these victims of very horrific crimes that I really felt a real responsibility to do that. Why don't lawyers on the ground want to take it up? Is it because of those risks, of, risks to personal safety? Well, I can say with Farkunda's case, it was. There were a lot of lawyers that actually had talked to the family and they were specifically telling the family, you know, 
number one, they don't want to get killed. And two, if they did represent the family, they were requiring that the family, you know, buy them a one-way ticket to some European country or something. You know, they were coming with those types of demands, which was ridiculous. And I think, so I think definitely people were shy about those cases because of security, but also, you know, in Afghanistan, a victim has a right to be legally represented. And a lot of people aren't aware of that legislation. So frankly, when I started representing victims, like mostly women in court who are victims of domestic violence, I had judges basically telling me that I can't do that because the law doesn't allow for it. And it wasn't until I started pointing out what the law was and that the law does allow for victim to be represented in court that they then started allowing me to do it. So I think it was both of those two things. It was very super sensitive cases, but also a lot of people were just unaware that it was actually legally allowed for a victim to have an attorney to represent them in court. And to what extent are you actually worried yourself about your personal safety? Obviously, it's paramount that someone represents these cases and that's where you come into play. But to what extent do these dangers actually put you off mm -hmm. doing the work? Well, you know, the thing, the risk is something I'm, I'm sort of used to now. You know, I take very calculated risks and there are certain things that I do within my own security protocol that make sense to me um, in order to best protect me. But also, you know, it's, as a defense attorney, you're always going to have someone on the other side that's not going to be happy with you, even mm. if you're in the U.S. And so, you know, there's always a risk no matter where you are um, representing somebody. So it's something I guess to a certain extent I've kind of gotten used to, um, but it is something that I, I am mindful, mindful of, but I'm not obsessive about it, if that makes sense. You've talked about how in your experience, justice is not always attainable. And instead, you search for, quote, justness. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And, and how does justness compare to justice? Well, I feel like for a lot of people, justice is more vengeful for them. Whereas I feel like justness is using the laws to protect and working within the confines of the law. So for instance, I was representing a mother whose daughter was horrifically killed by her husband and her uncle. And so the mother wanted me to help her to prosecute the two men for murdering her daughter. We were able to go to court and ultimately they were given, I believe, a 10-year sentence and then they were put in prison. About a couple months after their sentence, mom came back to me and said, well, I'd like these two men to be transferred to the Kabul prison to pull the charki. And I said, why? And she said, well, basically because she knows people in there that, could, that will murder them for her. And so, of course, I didn't help her with that. But to that mom, that is justice. To her, having the men be murdered as her daughter was murdered is justice for her. It's just not the justice that I'm going to be a part of. And so I had explained to mom that, no, I work within the confines of the law. I fight for justness, the legal realities of a situation. And so I feel like justice is sort of um, a cons an idea that is hardly ever reached when you're a victim of crime, because the whole point is, is to get justice, you're made whole again. And for a lot of victims, they're never made whole again. 
my job is to work within the confines of the law and to fight for those realities. So fight for justness. Working within the confines of the law and also seeing opportunities to change or challenge the law when it comes up, is that is that part of the pursuit of justness too? I mean, definitely. I think it's about using the law. It's about being very creative with the law. I mean, a lot of what I do involves a lot of creativity. Now, that's interesting. A lot of people who think about the law wouldn't think that creativity is part of seeking justness. What do you mean by creativity? I mean, I think definitely you have to be, in order to be an effective litigator, I think you have to be creative. You have to understand, you know, not just the laws, the nuances of the laws, but how you need to argue for it and get people to change their way of thinking with perhaps something that they have done a thousand times over. And so as a lawyer, it's our job to like, you know, sort of create playlists of our case and to create songs and to create our arguments that we, you know, each case has a different playlist that you're creating for court, you know, and you have to figure out what songs that you want to put into that playlist to get the court to feel you and to dance to you what you're saying. You know, some courts, like I said, they love hip hop. Some courts, they like rap. Some courts, they like rock. But you have to figure out what genre of music makes sense that you need to articulate as a lawyer to create this playlist to argue on behalf of your clients. I never thought I'd be convinced that that there were parallels between operating as a lawyer and operating as a DJ, but obviously as a lawyer, you're very persuasive and I now see those (laughs) those parallels now. Now, in 2015, there was a documentary that was made about your career in Afghanistan. It was directed by the Danish filmmaker Nicole Horanyi was awarded the Grand Jury Prize at the DOC NYC Film Festival. I'm wondering now that that documentary has been made and a lot of people responded to it, did it actually change the way that you saw your own work at all? A little bit. I think it it it, it didn't change the way that I saw my work necessarily, but it did change sort of my perspective in the in from the point of my practice should not just be confined to Afghanistan and or the US. And so now my practice has really expanded to where I'm practicing law all over the world. So that's how it has, I guess, changed my perspective a little bit that it's just a bigger fight than what I originally thought it was. And so what has started in Afghanistan has really sort of exploded into a real global legal practice. Mm. It's such a complicated professional life that you lead. How does it affect your personal life? Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I have three kids that I'm very fortunate to have. What's and, the age range? Uh, 13, 17, and 22. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they're all, you know, very well-adjusted kids, but it takes a toll because a lot of my time is spent away from them. You know, it does get sort of, I try to be very optimistic, but it, it can get to you sometimes. You know, I was just talking to um, one of my friends about how there's just so many fights and so many countries that I'm just involved with, you know, and it's just sometimes I just have to take a step back and you're just kind of like, you know, what do you do? But you have to keep fighting. So to do the work effectively, you need to be nimble. You need to be responsive. And that can take you away from your family at, at the drop of a hat, it sounds like. So how do you kind of manage those practicalities with also the practicalities of managing mm-hmm. a family? Well, I mean, I Try not to tell people where I'm at too much, you know, what country I'm at. I think that definitely helps. I definitely value my sleep. You know, I have learned to really value my sleep. A lot of people meditate and and I, I sort of feel like my sleep is I do a lot of meditation like before I sleep. And I think that's really, really helpful. And that has really been a saving grace for me because when I'm up, 
I'm working. You work in one of the most dangerous countries in the world. Um, at the same time, it has become what it is because of its intersection with global politics. And as a citizen of the United States, to what extent do you regard the United States of America dangerous in its own way? Oh, the United States. I don't know what's going on in the US. I mean, there's a lot of really uh, scary things that are happening in the US, but I do think that our legal system has withstood a lot um, and has been able to show that it can stand the test of time, which is good. Um, but there's a lot of fights. I mean, what things that are happening within the immigration sphere is uh, daunting, but there are a lot of lawyers that are fighting in that arena, which I think is wonderful. Um, but, you know, it's it's like we're showing cracks in our armor, which I think, frankly, we needed to show mm. in order to hopefully at the end of the day, make our systems better. I often think that the remedy to despair is work. And I know that in the United States, there has been a lot of despair politically. I can only imagine in Afghanistan, the despair that can settle in. Is it sometimes hard to get to work? And are you optimistic about change for both of those countries? I mean, I definitely am optimistic about change for both countries. Um, I can say that at least in Afghanistan, when I went in 2008, there were, I believe, less than 100 attorneys that were licensed or that were registered to practice law in the country. Now, you know, over 11 years later, there's over a thousand attorneys that are registered to practice in the country. I've seen a lot of women lawyers that um, have graduated law, um, law school, which is great. I've seen a, a more women judges. I see more kids that are going to school. The infant mortality rate has has gone down, which is amazing. So there are a lot of positives with Afghanistan. Afghanistan, I understand, is also a country where two thirds of the population, I believe, is 25 years of age or less. So it's a very young country, um, which, you know, ideally, which generally means that you'll get more progressive thought processes. Um, with the US, what's happening in the US right now often hurts my heart because I don't understand some of the negativity and hatred that's happening there. And, you know, this is not sort of the country or the the way that I grew up. And I think a lot of Americans, they really don't understand how bad it can be. And I have seen bad, like in Afghanistan or in other countries that I've practiced in. And, you know, having to a totalitarian government, like it is not what you want, you know? And I think a lot of people don't really understand that. But I think one thing that's encouraging is to see people fighting and protesting and standing up for what they believe in for the system. And so the fact that me as an individual has been able to do what I do for going on 12 years now, I have to be optimistic because Afghanistan could have kicked me out a long time ago if they wanted to and said, no, we don't need you here. We don't want your, you to practice law here. And they haven't done that. So I think that's very encouraging. And the fact that I'm still able to sort of move in the U.S. and practice and be effective there, I think that's also very encouraging. Kimberly, you've had a documentary made about you and now you've written a book, Lawless. What do you want people to understand about the nature of justice or justness and how to achieve it from reading your story? Well, for me, I feel like uh, justness is something we're all entitled to. We're we're entitled to have the laws there to protect us. And for me, the laws are a very tangible thing. 
and I take ownership of the laws. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, they don't feel like the laws are really meant to protect them. And what I try to sort of portray in the book is that we all have a right to our laws. We all have a right to protection. And it's, I have a responsibility to like educate people and to give them their laws. I sort of feel like I'm doing that a lot of times. I'm giving them their laws by educating them about their laws. And so for me, writing law lists, it, for me, it's not like a story about practicing law in Afghanistan. To me, it's more of a story of how I came of age, you know, and sort of how I've edu- been able to educate myself and be educated on how the law works or how it doesn't work. And that against all odds, I've been able to help my clients in the best way that I could. Kimberly Motley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.